Hi, everyone. I'm Sally Wilson, and we have something a little bit different for you today. Instead of me interviewing somebody else, the wonderful Alex Bradfield, who has joined us, is going to interview me. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Sal. Thank you. <laughs> so, listeners and watchers, Alex recently authored a book called Energy for Life. She also spent decades as a relationships counsellor, um, a career strategy consultant, a columnist, and also as a trustee of a philanthropic trust. And she's going to, she actually made this suggestion to me the other day. She said, Sal, you know, these interviews are all, they're all great, but, you know, has anyone ever interviewed you about what you're doing? <laughs> So, hence, we have our um, program for today. So, I'm actually going to just completely hand it over to you now, Alex. Oh, thank we'll you, Sally. Thank you. Are you happy with going way back to the beginning? What do you remember about being a child? Well, what I remember was growing up on a farm, loving my childhood. Uh, I have one older brother and had lots of animals. And one of the things that particularly stands out from that time was how I already loved to sing. Um, and like all kids, you know, loved that world of the imagination. But um, I remember, you know, dressing up and going out into the paddocks with all of my jewellery on <laughs> as a child, all of it, all at once, and singing. Um, so there are lots of wonderful, wonderful memories from that time, um, there were also times that were really hard, you know, during the, the drought, uh, the really bad drought. I think it was in sort of 86 or somewhere around there. Um, th that was a very, very tough time. But all in all, it was growing up on a farm, um, going to school in a very small town nearby. Um, does that answer your question? Yes, I have a vision, Sal, of you with your jewellery on singing to the cows or the sheep. Or, who was the audience? Yeah, the sheep, the sheep, <laughs> you know, and I loved horses. So, so you know, rode horses, but mainly sang to the sheep. Yes. Yeah, they yeah. would have loved it. I'm sure they would have loved it. So oh. you're talking already about singing at a very young age. And where, where did this interest in music start and uh, well it started way back then but how did it develop into an interest and and a passion for opera yeah well that's a good question I mean we were very fortunate at my primary school Darren Allen primary school in western Victoria to have an extraordinary music teacher now that was by no means you know normal at the time mm -hmm. but we had um, also a wonderful headmaster Jack Elliott um, for quite a few years and he recognized the value in teaching classroom music so all of us got a music education with Mrs Gilmore uh, Ruth Gilmore who was the music teacher and she also ran a choir for any of us kids who were interested during lunchtime school lunchtimes and she was a real disciplinarian at least that's how I remember her um, she seems like such a softy now <laughs> when I go and see her. But, um, and I just remember learning harmony. Um, you know, in the classroom music, we, would, we all learnt rhythm. We all learnt how to read music. But in choir, those, those moments where we got to sing in harmony were some of the most uplifting moments I can remember. Um, 
you know, they talk about the, the endorphins that are released when we sing, particularly when we sing in a group. And apparently they're the, it's the same as, you know, the endorphins that, that monkeys um, produce when they're, when they're grooming each other. <laughs> so oh. it's like this mass grooming going on <laughs> when we're singing. Um, but she encouraged me. And I remember, you know, we used to, as a choir, go to the, the country of Steadfords and, um, and we always won. So it was a great source of pride for that little school. And one year she said, does anybody want to do a solo? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a few other kids were like, oh, yeah. So um, she prepared us to do solos. That was the first solo I sang. I remember singing um, in, a, in a performance. I can still remember it. Um, in a Spanish garden, there's a little tree. It goes on like that. So I've still got a recording of this little, little baby sound voice. How old were you? I'll have to look up the date on the tape. Yes, it's a cassette tape. Um, I think I was probably nine. Nine. What an exceptional school and an exceptional headmaster and teacher to yep. have included that because I, I learned only recently the correlation between music education and learning to read. And so often music is considered a nice to have instead of an essential part of an education. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, um, we, I, I did a, an episode, another episode uh, of the podcast with James Cuskelly, who talks about that. He's a music educator. And, um, you know, and for people who can't afford to give their kids music lessons, it's not about giving them music lessons. It doesn't have to be at all. It's singing them little songs as you bounce them on your knee. And it's, it's just incorporating these aspects of music um, into life because, well, it, it, it's a part of who we are. In every culture, it's just so important. So yes. now what was your first singing? But how did you get from there onto the operatic stage, Sal? Yeah, well, okay. So, so I, you know, it kept being encouraged by some amazing teachers. Um, you know, Tom Healy was my, was my choir director at, um, in secondary school and his wife, Helen Seymour, they were amazing supporters. And anyway, that sort of, you know, that kept happening, the solos and the choirs and orchestras and piano and all that sort of stuff. I was very fortunate that I had those opportunities and that support. And then when I, when I left secondary school, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had quite a broad range of interests and I just didn't know whether I wanted to do music professionally. And, um, and so I thought, well, I just need, I actually need a year. So I took a gap year, what we call a gap year now. Um, and I thought I just need a year where it's all different, where everything's different, where I'm, where I'm out of my, I didn't think of the, think of it in these terms at the time. Comfort zone. Mm. Um, one of my one of the things I really wanted was to actually feel like a foreigner. I wanted mm -hmm. to be somewhere where I felt like a foreigner. I don't know why. I mean, as a well, seventeen, eighteen year old, town where everyone would have known everyone. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, but then you know, secondary school was boarding school. Um, oh. mm -hmm. Yeah, but I but I just. I just felt like I had been in the very fortunate position of feeling safe, feeling like I belonged. And there was a part of me that was aware that not everybody has that experience. Um, and so I went off to Japan for a year 
Um, I'd studied Japanese at school, went off to Japan for a year, worked in a um, traditional hotel yeah, with a kimono on and, you know, kind of extreme sorts of things. Worked in a karaoke bar, um, studied Aikido, studied, um, you know, um, ceramics and things like that. And came back to Australia a year later. I thought, no, I still don't know whether I want to do music professionally. So then I started an arts degree because it gave me the opportunity to study all these things that I knew I was fascinated in. I just didn't quite know where they were going. Mm -hmm. And then after a year of that, I thought, no, I'm ready. I want to do this professionally. So I started um, studying music at the Melbourne Conservatorium. Um, At that point, I actually wasn't that keen on opera. It was art song that I loved, art song and chamber music. Um, but very few people make a living singing art songs. <laughs> so, um, so I studied opera as well. And once you study it and once your technique really improves and you, you feel the exhilaration of producing that sound, doesn't happen overnight, <laughs> takes years and years and years. But once that sort of clicks in, then it's, it is exhilarating. Um, not always, but but it often is just producing that sound and collaborating and with orchestras and, you know, it's an extraordinary feeling. Um, so that's how I then started to study music. And, um, and I went to the States on an exchange uh, to Pennsylvania State University because they had a, a great program there with all sorts of wonderful subjects for singers, you know, um, pedagogy you know vocal pedagogy and lots of opportunities for performance and doing operatic scenes and you know we we were allowed to we we had the opportunity to get up and perform every week there Mm. and that was amazing um yeah so really good teachers and then from there I I did a summer school the Chautauqua summer school I don't know if it's still running um and that and that's where I saw other kids I shouldn't say kids young adults in their, you know, sort of late teens, early 20s who were studying at Juilliard and the Manhattan School of Music and places like that and Curtis and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's where I need to go because, I mean, these were exceptional singers and performers, a lot of them. And that's how I wound up at the Manhattan School of Music to finish off finally Mm -hmm. a degree. (laughs) I got a degree. (laughs) But much learning in between. A huge amount of learning, huge, yeah. And and but then you went to London. You were in London, were you not? Yeah. So I started my career in the states, and um, and after a few years, I just thought, you know, I just want to experience other countries and the the sort of music making that goes on in other places. And and I'd spent some a little bit of time in Europe, like when I was. Um, at Melbourne Uni, I'd um, I'd got a, a scholarship to go and and just study Italian in Italy, and it was one of those, you know, people who are listening, young people out there. <laughs> I only got this scholarship because nobody nobody knew it existed, and so I went to the scholarships or whatever it is department and said, "Hey, this is what I need to do. Is there are there any scholarships for that?" <laughs> and there wow. was, so it's always mm-hmm. worth asking. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, after a few years of performing in the, in the States, I thought, no, I, I need to experience some different places. So I went to and lived in, I got, I got a, um, a six-month job, actually. Was, I think it was about six months at Savoy Opera in London. So I went over audition, got the, got the gig. So that meant it was much easier to move over then than it would have been otherwise. Um, 
and I was in London for three years. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, I would love this. I'd love to have the hour or so that we have together just to explore more about your musical career. But you've moved on from then, and I'm fascinating to uh, I'm fascinated to understand a little bit of how you made this this uh, uh, challenging change between your operatic um, career to helping individuals who are struggling with trauma. It just seems unrelated, except actually. There's an awful lot of trauma in opera, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not just the heroines. <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. It seems like a big jump, but it it all happened really quite organically. Um, so when I when we my husband and I eventually moved back to Australia in 2013, we'd been living in in um, Germany for six years. Um, Gosh, I don't quite know where to start with this. It's sort of a, yeah, mm-hmm. we'd be, yeah. So, so at a, so I was doing, I was singing Carmen, right, in Switzerland. And I was, st- I stood on the stage and I was, and I suddenly thought, suddenly realized it's not worth it anymore. Hmm. And um, a couple of months later, we were <laughs> heading back to Australia. Um, and when I say it's not worth it anymore, uh, you, you do make a lot of sacrifices. Um, they don't feel like sacrifices when it's still the right thing for you to be doing. But, you know, you, you miss out on time with family. You're on the go. You don't have a stable community. Um, you're often living out of suitcases. Mm. Um, and, it's, and it's not a stable life. You know, you don't have a guaranteed income and all those sorts of things. Um, but it was mainly the community and, and sort of feeling like I was missing out on, on time with my family as well, who were, you know, back, in here, back here in Australia. And I had a little niece. Uh, I didn't want to miss out on her growing up. Um, so we moved back to Australia. And one of the things that I, I did when we moved back was uh, start teaching at, um, at a university in Melbourne. And I realised quite quickly that the majority of my students um, weren't coping. They weren't coping with life very well, let alone uh, trying to develop a career in music for which you need a lot of resilience. Mm. Um, And a lot of these um, young people were, see, I was seeing them week after week on a weekly basis. A lot of these people were getting, were getting help already with their, their anxiety or their panic attacks or their depression, or, you know, when, when teaching singing is a very personal thing when you're commenting on somebody's voice and you hear everything reflected in the voice Mm -hmm. it often becomes quite a close relationship um and so these these students would share certain things with me um, because I could always tell when I heard them come and sing that when things weren't quite right in their lives um and so I started asking the other teachers well What's your experience? I mean, are your students coping well? Are they, you know, are they um, dealing with a whole lot of mental health issues that mine seem to be dealing with? And what? And I found that it was pretty consistent um, also among the students of the other teachers that are having similar experiences. And I thought, well, what, what these young people are doing in terms of the help that they're getting it just didn't seem to be working very quickly. And in some cases, it didn't seem to be really making much of a difference, to be honest. And 
So I started to just question that a bit and think, well, surely there must be a better, there must be a better way. There must be things that, that work, that really work. I mean, if our mind has the capacity to do, to sort of take us there, then it has the capacity to get us out of there. And, um, and, you know, when I look back on the opera and all that sort of thing, it's, it's, you know, 2020 vision, you, you, you see those sorts of issues um, that were, that of course singers were experiencing as well. Um, some were able to rehearse really well, but not able to perform or, you know, these sorts of things happening. Um, so anyway, once I kind of thought, right, well, we need to find a better solution. Um, one of the, the teachers at this university has, has, or has and had an aunt called um, Judith Richards. And, and this colleague said to me, you know, my, my aunt does this thing. Um, maybe you should talk to her and, and see, you know, <clears throat> ask her what she thinks and see what her thing's all about. Um, and that's where I came across the Richards trauma process. Which I'd love to hear more about and also how you differentiate it, um, Sally, from, from other forms of therapy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, the Richards trauma process works with somebody's subconscious. So when we have symptoms like anxiety, chronic worry, chronic stress, chronic overwhelm, um, you know, the, the things that I mentioned before, depression, panic attacks, um, they're symptoms of distressing stuff that's happened in our past. And I say distressing stuff <laughs> Because when we say trauma, most mm. of us think of war zones, mm -hmm. yes. um, domestic violence, which is a huge problem, or, you know, rape or, you know, extreme distress. Yes. Um, but when I talk about trauma, I try to, I cover the whole spectrum. So there is the extreme distress. Um, and there are also things that happen to us when we're kids, which when we look back on as adults, we think, oh, Oh, come on, that wasn't, that was nothing. But, but to that little child, mm. it could have been huge. Mm. You know, at the, the loss of, sorry? At the time. At the time, mm. it changed their lives and their perspective on lives and perhaps their perspective on themsel themselves. Um, you know, uh, some, some examples might be uh, the death of, of their first animal or it might be one day getting lost. Um, and the thing is also our nervous system is picking up information uh, from when we're in utero. So if something distra distressing happened to our mother when she was pregnant with us, no, of course, it's not in our conscious memory, but our nervous system has already onboarded that information, which is often I'm not safe. Mm. And so the same things. also affect us in terms of preventing our best performance. It's stuff that's happened in the past that hasn't been properly resolved in our subconscious mind and filed away properly <laughs> um, as, as a memory that's complete, that's not going around and around and around in our systems. Um, mm -hmm. You know, stuff that's led us to beliefs like um, I'm not enough. Whatever I do, it's not enough. Or I don't belong. Um, 
you know, when you look at high achievers, which and, and high achievers form a, a big part of my clientele, um, client high achievers in business and sports and the performing arts. Um, the things that prevent their best performance are often things that stem from childhood, and and often these are people who had what they th- what they considered fantastic childhoods, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And um, I'm just thinking now, uh, when you mention uh, events perhaps in utero with your mother being depressed or upset or anxious herself that passed through the umbilical cord somehow, uh, how, if someone doesn't even remember these things that may have happened in pregnancy or in the very early months of life or something, how can you work with them? So often you'll find that people have heard stories. Um, so if a mother have a, had a real, I mean, the birth experience for some mothers and, and babies is life-threatening. Um, so if people have that information or can obtain it, I ask for it. Um, not in great depth. I, would, I don't want people to go into a lot of detail. They don't need to. Um, but the thing is we can turn off those what I call videotape loops <laughs> that are going round and round and round in somebody's system sometimes they're the you know it's the videotape loop that is is just constantly on automatic repeat and other times it's a videotape loop that's just waiting for someone to press play for something to trigger it um and those those things can be anything from um you know a pattern of attracting attracting um unhealthy relationships being attracted to unhealthy relationships um, it can be, you know, there are some people who are just accident prone. Well, where do you think that starts? You know, it, it starts as a pattern, as a belief and a pattern, and then it repeats itself because our brain seeks coherence, mm. you know. Um, it can be that whole thing of whatever I do, I'm never enough. So you can get Olympians <laughs> who never feel like they're enough, no matter what they achieve. Very common. That's a very common thing, isn't it? Very. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you, understand that um, the individuals you work with, you're not actually asking them to relive these experiences. Quite often, it's so terrifying. If it it is extreme, it's too terrifying to look at. So tell me more about that. So the, the way the Richards trauma process differs to a lot of therapies is that We don't need to hear people's stories. We don't need to talk about it. In fact, um, in, in, in so many situations, it's actually counterproductive uh, because we don't want neurons, you know, flooding to those super highways that are already there that actually don't serve that person. Um, and often in talking about our experience, our traumatic or distressing experience, we're deepening those unwanted neural highways. Mm. Um, so we work with the subconscious in order to change this stuff because that's where it's stored. You know, we can consciously think I'm safe and no, I'm safe, I'm safe. (laughs) Mm. And yet we can have a panic attack even though we consciously know we're safe. It's because our subconscious Mm. runs our behaviour, our lives sort of 95% of the time. And if it thinks I'm not safe, you're not safe, I'm going to protect you, it'll throw you into a panic attack or into anxiety even when you consciously know that you're safe. Mm. Because your subconscious doesn't know that. I'm thinking of 
perhaps on a wintry afternoon being by a cozy fire, which seems like such a safe um, place to be. But if someone has ever been uh, frightened or in danger by a, a house fire or something, yeah. that might be enough to trigger some deep feelings. Absolutely. A colleague was telling me uh, about one of her clients the other day who whenever she was in the kitchen and, um, and there was a, a, a man, you know, any man um, who spoke in a loud voice, wh- whether or not it was directed at her, it might have been directed at the politics on the TV, she would go into um, a fight or flight freeze for her freeze <laughs> um, because when she was a child, um, her, her mother was threatened by her father with a knife in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you can still deal with this stuff, even if this is the thing with traumatic memories for children, sometimes they are suppressed and that's a survival mechanism mm-hmm. as well. Um, you don't, we don't need to remember them in order for it to be resolved. It sounds crazy, but we don't. So, I mean, I've I've seen the words deep reimagining involved with this method. Is that something you can explain? Yeah, yeah. So in order to resolve this stuff, whether it's extreme trauma or barriers to our success or our best performance, in order to resolve it, We need to work with the subconscious. And one of the languages of the subconscious is the imagination. Now, the subconscious or unconscious, I I personally use those terms interchangeably, can't tell the difference between something that's really happened and something that we have richly imagined. So... An example, a sort of everyday example might be people who are catastrophizers or worriers and they imagine the worst possible case scenario outcome. They will get stressed. Their body will get stressed. They, w- they won't be able to think clearly. That's, that's a sort of everyday kind of example. Um, another example is, you know, studies that have been done, for example, on... Um, there's this study that was done on piano players, right? People, people who hadn't played the piano before, one group was given a five-finger exercise to, to play over a certain number of weeks for a certain number of you know, minutes or hours per day. There was another group that was given the task of just richly imagining or mentally rehearsing. I think they were the, the terms that they used for this study, Mental, mentally re- re- rehearsing um, that five-finger exercise. And then there was a control group who didn't do anything, right? The, the changes in the brain, the neurological changes that happened for the, the group that actually played the five-finger exercise were the same as those who mentally rehearsed it. And I have another example I read years ago about two basketball teams who did exactly the same thing. It was under the heading of visualization. So one team practiced for a fortnight. The other team simply did all the moves that they would have done on the court, but in their heads. And I read that the amount of improvement for each team was not that different. Yeah. I mean, and there are even, you know, studies where um, people have imagined doing workouts, right? And their muscle, their strength (laughs) improves and their muscle mass increases. 
I must try that. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> while I mean, I'm lying down on the couch, I must try that. <laughs> you know, I remember reading um, a yogi, a yogi's account. I, I wish I could remember which one it was, but he said, if you're ever sick and you can't exercise, imagine you're walking up a hill. And I remember thinking, oh, yes. please. Well, science proves now that the changes are significant um, if we really richly imagine doing something. Um, our subconscious believes it. So that is how you work. You work at that level. Yep. Um, and I understand that you are, uh, you're helping people to become empowered as they were not when this happened, whatever yep. it was. Yep. Yeah the, yeah, the process really helps people get their power back. It frees them from the past. It, you know, some people feel stuck in the past, like there are chains attaching them, you know, you know, and they can't move on. And, and, and so many people come to me who have, have done countless therapies. You know, another person just, just called up the other day um yesterday and said look I've done so much I've done so many therapies and because I've had so many people in that situation I can now say you know what doesn't matter this mm. works you know does it work 100% of the time no mm. <laughs> nothing yeah, there does must there must be some people who say well it hasn't worked for me mm. yep and and usually that's because either they haven't followed instructions properly or fully engaged or mm. in some cases, and I don't find this happens very often, but in some cases they have a reason for staying stuck where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes they're not even aware of that reason. You know, sometimes the reason is unconscious. And normally if there is, and we refer to that as a secondary gain, normally if there is a secondary gain, we figure it out and we work through it and it's fine. Mm. Um, but there is the odd occasion where somebody deep down would prefer to stay where they are than get well. Mm. Um, and the other situation where, where it might not work is if, um, if somebody is, somebody gets to the point where they're really, really well, they're fantastic. Life's just brilliant. And then they go back into a toxic environment. So, you know, an, ex an ex extreme example might be um, somebody who, you know, breaks their addictions. Let's just say they've been, they, they took drugs for a certain period of, of their lives. They, they're clean. They've done the work on the trauma, which usually um, was the reason that they were drawn to drugs to begin with. Um, they've done the work on the trauma and, and they're great. And then they go back and they hang out with friends who are still doing drugs. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, or or somebody who gets to the place where they're really, really empowered and then goes back to a partner who's narcissistic or manipulative or controlling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're drawn back to where they were. How, yeah, this sounds like such an interesting method for prisons. Do you know any therapists who have worked um, with TRTP in prisons? No. And my guess that? would be it's because they're still in a toxic environment. A lot of us have worked with people who have been in prison in the past mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. who've been offenders in the past. Um, 
but if they're if they're going straight into back into an environment where there is a lot of toxicity and stress and you know all sorts of stuff then um you'd you'd better to wait until they're out of there Mm -hmm. yeah Mm. so um is there any another example that you might want to touch on without divulging any confidentiality, of course, Sally, of uh, how this process has worked well? Yeah, um, and I would and I would say that in terms of so you, we do depression, anxiety, stress scores, DAS forms, um, with everybody with our clients at the beginning of the process, the first session and at the end of the process, which is well at the beginning of the third session. So there are usually three sessions. Um, sessions are one and a half hours to two hours. So they're slightly longer than, than most other mm-hmm. therapies. Um, and a little caveat on that. Sometimes it varies a bit. Sometimes we need to work with people a little bit differently, but that's the, the general framework. Um, so we do a DAS form at the beginning of the first session and a DAS form at the beginning of the third session. Um, and it's around 90% of people who have had extreme or extreme, sorry, extreme, sorry, severe or extremely severe um, depression, anxiety, or stress, about 90% of those people um, come down to normal, a normal mm. rating in that period of time. And um, a lot of us also do, um, we have a bit of a check-in because it's just, you know, it's kind of a wonderful privilege to be able to see the transformation in people's lives. Um, So some of us check in a month after the the process, a month after we've worked with that client or maybe even six months, just depends. Um, and, And the results, they stick. As long as somebody isn't going back into a toxic environment, and of course, if big life stuff happens, you know, the loss of a loved one, or of course things, you know, it, it's not like a magic pill for the rest of your life. But, um, but the big stuff, uh, the big stuff has kind of been done. The stuff from the past has been done. Um, and, then the, and then, you know, clients are in a position to be able to choose their way forward, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so... I'll tell you a, a couple of different client stories. Um, and these are clients who've actually given permission for me to share their stories. I'm not going to share their names, obviously. But um, one client had uh, a very traumatic childhood, as, as, you know, quite a lot of my clients do, whether it's childhood sexual abuse or, um, you know, domestic violence, growing up that, in that sort of situation. Um, and she wound up with PTSD later in life. She also had a very uh, traumatic experience with one of her partners when she was an adult. Um, and that's what really flipped her into PTSD. So, so nightmares and all the horror that goes along with that. Um, brain fog, not being able to think clearly, uh, you know, being on high alert all the time. Um, so for this particular client, we did four sessions. Um, and I've actually, I actually pulled out some words that she wrote to me after her process. This is a very high-functioning person, um, quite successful. 
even when she had PTSD, which is kind of amazing, <laughs> um, she said, proudly reporting in that I've never been so busy with work and getting away, but never so consciously aware that I now have a choice to not buy into that, but rock on anyway and achieve exactly the same amazing outcome, but with my stomach, nerves and head intact is a new experience for me. And I believe I will call it peaceful excellence. Mm, what a, well, you mentioned two stories, but let's just stick with that because okay. it's, it's a remarkable story. I, I love it. And you would, and you would too. Um, Sal, how has your own life been affected or changed by this work? Oh, I, I, you know, even you're asking this question, I'm getting all these goosebumps, Alex. Um, so in so many ways, um, Firstly, working with people and seeing these results is one of the most exciting things a practitioner can experience, whether it's somebody going from no self-belief to just oozing self-belief or someone going from PTSD, nightmares, flashbacks to nothing. Peaceful excellence. Peaceful excellence. It's, it, it's, it's elating. Um, you know, and I often get, I often get, you know, texts and things from, from past clients saying, just letting you know, I've got a boyfriend now and I'm, you know, like just, you know, wonderful things. Um, and that, of course, has a huge positive impact on my life, um, you know, to feel that you're really contributing and making a difference. And um, it's not, it's not, um, the thing is, it's not me doing it to the client <laughs> it's mm. empowering other people so that they can they're in a position to lead the lives they want to lead mm. it's really empowering them helping them to empower themselves that's really what this therapy is about I mean yes of course we're there we're guiding them every step of the way and the practitioner knows what to do they don't know what to do so of course we're we're guiding them but it's the client who's doing it um, so it's a very empowering process both for the practitioner but also for the the client you're facilitating um, you're facilitating yes. them mm. yes um yeah. and also so a, a lot of practitioners um come across trtp because they actually they do it as a client and then they're just like oh my god okay i've got to learn how to how to do this and help mm. other people i was in a different situation and then i was like i'm cool <laughs> Oh, I'm fine. Right? I don't really need this, but it was part of the, so, so to become a practitioner, obviously you have to go through the process yourself. Um, and, and I went to, into it thinking, oh, well, this will be interesting. <laughs> thinking I didn't really need it. Um, and it's changed me on such a profound level that Here's the thing. We're so used to our normal. I, my normal, which I hadn't even thought to question because it just seemed like it had always been like that, um, was actually carrying around a whole lot of guilt. Um, I had imposter syndrome for a long time. I had perfectionism for a long time. And I'm talking, you know, the kind of perfectionism that's a straitjacket, not the kind of striving to perfection because it's fun and it's rewarding and it's amazing. I mean, that, that is, of course, a part of it, but it was also that perfectionism of I've not an, I'm not enough. Whatever I do, I'm not enough. Irrelevant of what I achieved, no, it's not enough. <laughs> um, and 
once I did the process, I suddenly experienced life without just this burden of guilt, feeling like when things went wrong, it was my fault. And, you know, and I was one of those, am one of those very fortunate people who had a blessed childhood. (laughs) It's amazing what we can normalize. Mm. There are some clients who come and it was so normal for their parents to yell and scream at each other all the time. They just didn't question it. Mm. And it, you know, it, it has an ongoing effect on them in their lives, growing up feeling unsafe but they're like, oh no, yeah, yeah, oh, they, oh yeah, they pretty much had a screaming match every night. Oh, you know, <laughs> that was it's all a, right. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what we can normalize mm. as children. We just we we often don't question things. I I was talking to my my family the other day. My parents, you know, as as a little kid, <laughs> this will make you laugh. Mum and Dad had this plant holder that was a polar bear head. And it scared the living daylights out of me. Like every time I had to go into that room, I'd be skirting around this polar bear head. I was absolutely terrified of it. But I didn't think to say, Mom, that thing scares me. I just didn't think to say that. It was just there. It was a part of our house, (laughs) part of just the stuff that was around. So I I didn't think to even tell them. Um, And that's just the tiniest example, you know. I just think being little. You know, being little, you're immediately helpless with these giant people in your life, aren't you? So I imagine every one of us has something, something that frightened us as a child that we're with that is still we're still a child within us, aren't we? Now, I'd love to go on forever with this. So it's been so interesting talking to you. And, um, uh, you know, I've learned a lot and I look forward to other chats maybe in the future but thank you for being on the other side of the microphone for a change oh alex thank well thank you for suggesting this and for and for interviewing me i've i'm not used to doing this much talking i'm used to i'm used to um hearing the other person talk but i will um look forward to interviewing you particularly um particularly about your book and um so listeners and and uh and viewers you have that to look forward to um Thank you so much, Alex, and um, and all of those people who joined us, whether it's on the podcast or on uh, on YouTube. There, thank you for being a part of our community and and for really being a part of this conversation. And we will look forward to joining with you on the waves next time. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.